Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. It's been 25 years since the release of James Cameron's cult classic, Titanic. The epic movie, which early fans will remember came out on VHS in two parts because it was that long, is now being re-released in cinemas. But more importantly, James Cameron has finally admitted that Jack might have survived had he been allowed on the now infamous door. And if he was to make this film again today, he would make the raft a lot smaller. Today on the podcast, we're hearing an interview from our series, How I Found My Voice, with Kate Winslet. In conversation with Samira Ahmed, they discuss the great raft debate and the Academy Award-winning actress's even greater career. Let's go to Samira now to hear more. I know people love to hear stories about Leo and I. We were so connected and so close he would have done anything for me. I would have done anything for him. You know, we, we stood up for each other and quite literally held each other's hands. You know, when you're standing in freezing cold water for 10 hours straight and all you want to do is cry, you know, he'd, we'd be holding hands under the surface of the water and he'd be saying, come on, sweetie, one more, we can do it, keep going, keep going. Actually, if I had done the accent the way that she talks for an hour and a half, you probably don't want to hear that kind of voice so high like this the whole time. So I had to find a different place for the voice and talk like that, be much more direct with Steve when I'm talking to him. And I, and I, I remember absolutely feeling so bullied by the media, so horrendously bullied. Weighty Katie commenting on diets that I had been on, what I actually speculatively weighed. Can you imagine? There was room on that raft, wasn't there? 100%, 100% room on that raft. I don't know what happened with that. It, it just looked too big, didn't it? You know, <laughs> it just... Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape someone's success. How did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? 
My guest today is an actor whose IMDb listing has one line that really jumps out at you. It reads, one, one Oscar, another 90 wins and 159 nominations. She is Kate Winslet, who has proved a mesmerising screen presence since her breakout role in Heavenly Creatures aged just 17. As the star of Titanic, she's inspired romances and a million memes, and her 2011 film Contagion was rediscovered at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, even inspiring the British government's vaccine policy on it. Her roles range from period dramas, Sense and Sensibility, biopic, Steve Jobs, romances to thrillers and science fiction, and has been nominated seven times for an Oscar, winning for the reader playing a Nazi concentration camp guard. Her latest, Ammonite, is a bold imagining of the interior life of the Victorian fossil hunter Mary Anning. And it's a film which has also drawn her to campaign for an environmental charity, the Word Forest Organisation. Kate Winslet, I heard you slightly <laughs> laugh when I was reading out your 90 wins and 159 nominations. Uh, welcome to How I Found Thank you My very Voice. much for having me. Yeah, it's hilarious, isn't it? How did I do? I don't. Do you remember many of? Well, those I mean, films? how did I do all that? How did I get all those nominations and win all those badges and prizes and stickers and? <laughs> um, it's a. <laughs> um, it's amazing, really. Yeah, I didn't set out to do all of that. I Let's suppose. Let's find out. You know, it's a funny thing. Well, that's interesting because I always sort of start with the mini, the mini Kate Winslet. So take me back to the childhood you. You are from a theatrical family, aren't you? What was growing up in that family like? Loud and uh, colourful and, uh, and an enormous amount of fun. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in just a very regular family. My dad was an actor. My mum was not an actress and she was actually very shy and hated the idea of going on stage. But interestingly, both of her parents were actors and her mother was in the same class as Noel Coward at drama school when she was younger. And my grandfather was an actor, but he was also a dentist. Way to go for a combination. I mean, he had a family of six children. My mother is one of six, so he had to make a living, a proper living somewhere. But I, I grew up in, you know, in a world where acting was considered a, a, a great, fun, entertaining passion, but not a proper job. So I very much, it was never frowned upon, but it was considered not a proper job. So, so I always thought, well, if I wanted to do that and be on the stage, because I only ever imagined going on the stage, I didn't even imagine doing television. But I thought to myself, well, really? I'll have to figure out what that proper job is going to be. And I never did figure it out. And so thank God things worked out for me because there was, n there was never anything else that I, I wanted to do. I just wanted to do silly voices and dress up and I did like being on a, on a stage. I liked that feeling of audience interaction. It wasn't so much about applause. It was more about the gratifying impact that you get from, I don't know, being able to see responses on people's faces. Entertaining, you know, being an entertainer. But yeah, growing up in my family was it was really lovely, you know. It was a, it was, it was a, filled with fun and playing games and role play and dress up. And I remember dressing up my brother, who was the only boy and was always quite shy. We would dress him up as a, I don't know why. We used to read the Topsy and Tim books, and there was one edition of Topsy and Tim where they dressed up as gypsies and they'd put tight scarves on their heads and for some reason gold earrings, and they painted brown on their cheeks with co with cocoa powder mixed with water 
And I remember doing that to my brother and him sitting there going, oh, this is so embarrassing. And me thinking, what on earth could be embarrassing about this? It's fantastic. <laughs> I, do, I do remember oh. that. I do. Uh, yeah, very, we've got lots and lots of photographs of all of us dressed up and my poor old brother dressed up as well. What yes. a good sport. Now, you... Professionally, I think seven is how old you were when you started acting professionally. And your first gig was an advert for is it Honey Puffs, it was called then. The, no, they the were still called the Sugar Monster. Puffs. And it was a little bit later. I was probably about 12. Was and I was, I was one of many, many kids who were, who were in this, this commercial. But yes, I do remember. I do remember being paid £60, which was a huge, huge amount of money to me for being part in this commercial and, and getting fed all this free food. You know, I didn't know about on-set caterers. I couldn't believe all this wonderful food. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> so what sort of stuff were you doing in those years? You did an episode of Casualty. You were in the drama Shrinks, but this was presumably... A little bit later, so I was about 15. Then? I did an episode of Shrinks. You're absolutely right. God, I've almost forgotten about that one. I was in a series written by Russell T. Davis, actually, called Dark Season when I, when I was 15. And so I'm always really intrigued. I love seeing how well his career has gone and how it just, I mean, it's just everything he does is just brilliant. But then I did, I did Casualty, yes, when I, I had just left school. I'd finished my GCSEs. I did a first, the first series of a sitcom I was in called Get Back, in which Ray Winston played my dad. And... And it was but just before that, I think it was. Was it before or after? I can't remember. But I did this episode of Casualty. And to me, that was a very big deal because I, you know, I watched Casualty. And so meeting all those actors, I got incredibly starstruck. And it was soon after that that I was asked to audition for a film for the first time ever. And that film was Heavenly Creatures. And, and I, I was given the part. And that was the beginning of everything, really, for me. Let me ask about this. So the film absolutely made you a star. I remember that I remember at the time the critical acclaim about your performance. And it's based on a true story, isn't it, about two two girls, teenage girls who commit yep. this terrible murder. The ability was clearly already there for you to have made such a mark with that film. What do you remember about that role? Because you went out to New Zealand to film it. Yes, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember receiving the phone call to tell me I'd gotten the part. I remember every audition that I did with Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh in, in Soho at John and Ros Hubbard, who are casting directors, much-loved casting directors. And I, I, I remember a, a, a real... I just had this sort of burning desire to do anything I could to prove to them that I could play that part. But it was a very, it, it wasn't like a, oh, please let it be me, please let it be me. It wasn't that sort of a feeling. It was more, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm just going to stay steady. I'm just going to concentrate. And I'm just going to give them no option but to be so good that they just have to give me this job. And I, and I remember being incredibly focused and quite private about it. And that was really, I suppose, when I look back over all these years, I think for me, that was when the sort of process of being quite private about the job I do just within myself, it really began with Heavenly Creatures. You know, I don't talk about the job much. I didn't share it much with my family. I don't think I even let them read the script. But I was quite grown up for my age, even though I was only 17. I was, I did have a, I had a mature head on my shoulders and was, was fairly independent and yeah, off I off I went to New Zealand for three and a half months and 
and and and learnt and learnt so much. I mean, I, I you know I'm I have very much learnt on the job, and and that was you know that was the greatest education I could ever have been given at that point. I'm fascinated because it seems to me from what you've just told me that your acting comes kind of from instinct to some extent. You were born with it. And although you're learning on the job, you know, you didn't go to drama school, you haven't had formal training. And the fact that you had the confidence to maintain this privacy, that you knew how you were going to approach it and you just did it, that's quite unusual, isn't it? It probably it probably is quite unusual, I suppose. But I, I, I come from a family of pretty self-sufficient individuals, you know. You know, I don't want to use the word fighters, but just, you know, surviving realists, I guess. And so I I had most certainly had that instilled in me, this sense of like, come on, get on with it. You know, just knuckle under, do the work, focus. You know, I just I, I just that was part of my my life. And I also grew up surrounded by people who didn't feel that the world owed them owed them anything in any way. There was no sense of entitlement. There was no sense of bitterness or I don't know. Just, just n- no sense that anything was going to come for free, and an absolute ability to be able to just really make the most of of, of life. So I, I went to New Zealand just feeling elated. And what was so funny was that when I saw the film for the first time, probably about a year after we'd finished making it, I got such a shock because suddenly I was in a film. It wasn't just my lovely experience that I'd had working with Peter and Fran and Melanie Linsky, who'd played Pauline, the other girl in Heavenly Creatures. It wasn't just this wonderful personal experience that I'd had. It was it was there. We had to sort of share it and people were going to comment on it. And I was in a, a movie and it premiered at the Venice Film Festival. And I was in I was in Venice. I mean, you know, I just didn't go to places like that. That wasn't how I grew up at, at all. And it didn't and so, turn your head. No, I somehow know. I mean, I just, um, and it's never turned my head, you know, I really never. I've just always been able to see that side of the business as, as just the, that's the wow factor, you know. They're these great moments that come and then they go and then you go back to your reality, you know. And I, I was able to assess that straight away. I was able to see that. Oh, this is great fun, but it's not real. And so when that's gone, okay, and then you have to go back and do the work again. And I just was always able to do that. I don't really know how. Again, I think it's just that I had such lovely parents, quite honestly, and great family. Tell me about how you develop your voice as an actor in a literal sense, because you've played such a range of characters. And you say you learn, you know, as you kind of go, what's the process in taking, say, the character you played in Steve Jobs, who's of Polish heritage, you know, she has an accent, you've got to think about the volume of the voice, it it was someone real, and yet there was nothing showy about a performance that I've seen you in. How, How do you develop, you know, getting into a character like that? Well, it's really interesting when you say showy, because it's one thing that I shared with my late mother. We both have this real loathing of show-offs. My mum would say, oh, just just promise me you don't get showy-offy, she'd always say. And that has really stayed with me. And it definitely has an impact on on, 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 on my work, I think, and how I approach it. You know, I don't, funnily enough, I don't like being in the limelight. I'm not really such a driven career woman as, you know, one comes across a lot in this industry, but I'm not, I just love acting. I just absolutely love, love it. And also I don't want to ever get caught out. I don't want, my dad always says to me, you're only as good as your last gig, babe. And I still believe that to this day. So I'm like, okay, do the work, knuckle under. Okay, this is terrifying. Can't play this part. Oh my God, I'm going to get found out. They're going to fire me. I still go through all that whole thought process. But, you know, as I get older, 
for, for me, fear is so important because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have that that drive to do the work, you know, to, to really sort of bolt myself within these characters. And the voice of a character becomes a part of that, you know. And as I become more familiar to the world through the jobs that I do, and even through having conversations like this one, audiences start to feel that they sort of know me better as time goes by. You know, social media for sure, I think, adds to that, which is part of the reason why I don't have it, because it's nice to have some mystery. So for me, I feel it almost gets harder to completely separate from me and immerse myself in that character so that audiences can see a character. They see a character as part of a story, they don't see Kate. And so a voice for me, whenever I get to do a, an accent, I, I, really, I really appreciate it because I know that it adds to that, that, exactly that thing of being able to disappear. But there is a trick, there's lots of tricks, but one of the tricks for me is doing an accent really, really well, but doing it so well that it disappears and the audience don't hear you doing it. You know, often you'll watch someone do a very accomplished American accent or Scottish accent or Welsh accent, but somehow you can hear them doing it. You can, you're aware that they're doing a voice. And that's, to me, that's a whole a whole area that I try and really just stay away from. So I just drill it and I work it and I find it and, and really embed it. And sometimes a voice can have a different resonance f truly in your body. The character I just played in an HBO series, Mayor of Easttown, that's coming out in April. She's a woman whose world is in complete emotional crisis. She's dealing with, with, she's dealing with some grief Something happened two years before the story begins and it all unravels throughout each episode. But what that means is that her, she, she's very depressed. She's very lost and, and broken. And so the resonance, the register of her whole voice, like my voice is quite jolly and happy and colourful and, you know, there's lots of sort of noises to it and I'm animated with my hands. Mare is not like that at all. Her voice is very much deep within her. She's from Delaware County. It's a specific type of accent. And so it's much more from the core that that voice comes. And, and I just would work it and do it over and over again and spend more time with people who are actually from the area where the story is set and listen to them and hear their stories. And, and that all impacts on the placement of the voice within oneself. And just to bring it back to Joanna Hoffman, who I played in Steve Jobs. So Joanna actually talks a lot like that. So the voice comes right into her face and she's talking like this. And actually, if I had done the accent the way that she talks for an hour and a half, you probably don't want to hear that kind of voice so high like this the whole time. So I had to find a different place for the voice and talk like that, be much more direct with Steve when I'm talking to him. And so it affects everything about the character and then you feel more easy listening to somebody like that because that's a person you might meet in the street whereas if it's a person who's talking like this so so within playing real real characters who had really existed sometimes i have to take a tiny bit of artistic license because so you want people to be interested in what you have to say yeah you know you can't you can't it can't be that. the basil faulty you can't be the basil faulty of voices like i mean john cleese basil faulty one of the most extraordinary performances ever given, but exhaustive to watch because it's so on. Mm. And so with a dialect, you sometimes have to almost find like a backseat level to it so that it just hangs out there. 
and okay. shapes the character but doesn't dominate it. So it's a, it is hard and sometimes can hurt your face, you know. That's the other thing too. <laughs> well, that was, that was a real masterclass. Thank you. I want to straddle cinema and kind of your your place as, as a bit of a role model in that Emma Thompson recalled being very protective of you on Sense and Sensibility, which she wrote as well as co-starring in, and being furious at producers who she was worried were trying to pressure you about your appearance. You've spoken out about being bullied and body shamed as a teenager. And then I think these are your words. And then Kate from the sandwich shop in Reading got a leading role in Titanic. Why was it important for you to, to use your voice to speak out about that? Well, someone's ha- someone has to. And it's one of the things about this industry that I think is changing, actually. In fact, I think has changed dramatically since I was young. I mean, you know, when I think back to that time when I was 19, 20, 21, you know, you know, your body changes so much at that age. You haven't really settled into your woman self, you know, who you're ultimately going to be for your life, you know. And it's a very emotionally vulnerable time. And and I and I, I remember absolutely feeling so bullied by the media, so horrendously bullied, weighty Katie, commenting on diets that I had been on, what I actually speculatively weighed. Can you imagine? And so it's, it's, it's completely diabolical, disgraceful and harmful and messed with, my, you know, messed with my head, made me feel deeply insecure, paranoid. I mean, really just absolutely awful. And, and, I, and I will be grateful to Emma for the rest of my life because I, I really just remember her making me feel just embraced. And, but the point is, the point I'm really trying to make is, I've always only ever been a normal shape. It's just that I wasn't skinny, you see? And those were the days of the skinny, skinny, young waifish thing, you know? And because I wasn't that, I was labelled as curvy, busty, or as though I had some eating issue. I mean, it was just so terrible. And so I think, you know, I do think that whilst the media do still need to be held accountable for some of the things that they that they do. I don't think that we draw as much attention to leading actresses' body shapes now these days as much as we did. I do think people do, do still comment much more on what women look like than men, much more. You know, you'll so often see, I mean, I see it sometimes if I'm Googling BBC News and news feed things will pop up and I think, God, what, what are they doing? And there'll be some, a picture of I don't know, a, an older actress in a bikini on a beach and there'll be a whole entire commentary about how great she looks. Like they're trying to make a point about going in the opposite direction. But they don't say that about the men. They don't even comment on the men. There's a whole other vocabulary that is used to describe women in this industry than, than men. And I just we, we, we just have to keep calling people out and saying, well, that's not okay. Don't you do that. Thank you for all you've done over the years in calling it out. I, I won't have time to ask about it, but I remember when the GQ photoshopped cover oh. happened and they'd extended your legs and you went oh. public about that. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Well, cause, but that, that, was the time, that was the time when I started to realise that retouching was really a thing. It really happened. But I wasn't a model, so how dare they do that to me? I didn't ask for that, you know. I mean, models to a certain extent expected that to happen because it did happen as a matter of course and I was like don't you be doing that to me I'm a realist and I I don't I don't agree in lying 
to, to, to the public or, or, or even manipulating fact. I, I just, it, it really make, kind of makes my blood boil, to be honest. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Peter Lamont, the Oscar-winning production designer of Titanic, died just a week or so ago before we're talking. And I was reading about his remarkable work on these big-scale sets, which became... They really were a character in their own right. And it struck me that one of the reasons that you and Leonardo DiCaprio became true stars in that film is because you both managed not to be outshone by the sets. So my question <laughs> is, did you have to act in a different way when the laws of physics are working against you? I'm trying to think. You know, Leo and I were so... I know people love to hear stories about Leo and I and because in, in everyone's minds, we must surely have had this great <laughs> love affair. We didn't, I'm sorry. But we were so, we were so connected and so close and, 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 and really tight. We were a little unit. And so I, I think that we... That was quite that, and that was quite unusual. That is quite unusual, you know. We, were, I mean, he would have done anything for me. I would have done anything for him, you know. We we stood up for each other and quite literally held each other's hands, you know. When you're standing in freezing cold water for ten hours straight, and all you want to do is cry, you know. He, we'd be holding hands under the surface of the water, and he'd be saying, "Come on, sweetie, one more. We can do it. Keep going, keep going," you know. And I think, I think. If if we hadn't have had that, we yeah we could have been outshone by the by the sinking ship. 
There'll be a biography one day, the stories I've got, honestly. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious conversations we would have. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when Jack and Rose are right up on the ship there before it goes down. OK, that was a separate part of the set that worked on a hydraulic arm. So we were harnessed onto this thing. And it was like a fairground ride. Whoop, up it would go like this. And it would regularly break. So we would be stuck up there, just me and Leo. No one could get to us for hours. We would make up songs. We would chat. We would, we would unplug our, our radio mics that were hidden in our costumes. And it, we would just have such a great time. We'd be like, party for one. And it was at night. So we're outside under the stars chatting away. And I think if we hadn't have had that, we, you know, we would have definitely found the whole experience a lot harder. It was very, very hard. It's no secret that Titanic was hard. It was a very tough shoot. Conditions were difficult. The hours were long, six day weeks for seven months, four and a half months of which were shot by night. And so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that, that camaraderie that, that we had, which you don't always find. It is quite unique. So lucky me. And I got Leonardo DiCaprio all to myself for seven and a half months. It was fantastic. Mm. You know, there's a question that everyone has to ask, which is really, there was room on that raft, wasn't there? 100%, 100% room on that raft. I don't know what happened with that because the, they, they must have, I mean, the thing is they must have done, like they did so many tests on, on, you know, on the dress that Rose wears when the ship is sinking because it's, it's lots of thin layers of chiffon. And so when it's wet, it's wet, it's kind of dangerous when wet outfit. So we did so many tests on it to make it not that. But you, I'm, and I'm sure they must have done tests on that, that door, that bit of wood. It, it just looked too big, didn't it? You know, <laughs> it just, it ran, <laughs> 100%. But you know what, Jim Cameron, like, I did, I did Avatar with Jim Cameron and, and he was like, you know, who, who knew we were going to spend the rest of our lives answering questions about that door, Kate, you know. <laughs> Well, it's quite funny. How did Titanic change you and what you felt you could do or say about the roles you took? It's such a good question that and it's such a it's such a big question as well because I remember feeling defiantly that Titanic was not going to change me. I would remember the makeup artist Tina Earnshaw who worked on that film. And she would say to me, oh, Katie, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to change completely. It's going to completely change your life. And I would say, no, don't say that to me. Like, why? I'm not. Come on, it's it's just me. I'm not going to change. I'm not. It's not going to change my life. What are you? What are you talking about? But the reality is, it did dramatically change my life almost overnight. You know, I had a little flat in Holloway, a lovely, lovely flat, and from one day to the next, I could not go to the shop across the road anymore and buy a newspaper and a pint of milk. I just couldn't do it. It was it was what more hassle happen? than it was. Paparazzi everywhere, literally in my face. Flash, 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 flash. As many flashes as possible so that I would trip on something because I would almost, you know, lose my lose my eyesight. Very aggressively commenting on what I wore, what I did, what I bought, go into the shop, ask the person, oh, do you know her? How much does she come into the shop? What did she spend? What did she just such an invasion of one's space in ways that I think do probably still happen, but I think it is a lot better. Since Princess Diana died, things have gotten better. But it did, tr it did change. It changed the rhythm of my everyday existence dramatically. And, and in ways that were actually horrible, but only for a while. And the one thing that didn't change was me and who I am. I mean, that just didn't, 
It didn't change. Um, I, I, I do remember feeling quite lonely. I know that sounds really sad, but emotionally I remember feeling quite lonely because, you know, when you come from a family of, of loving, struggling actors and you're working, the last thing you want to do is complain about any part of it. And it's very hard to explain to people why it's hard and why you're not liking that, that moment in time without sounding ungrateful. And I was, I was raised to, to really express gratitude and, and, and kindness at all times. So I got quite stuck with that and, and really felt, who do I talk to about this? How do I share this? And luckily I did have a couple of really terrific friends and Emma was one of them and she would say, oh God, just ignore it, ignore it. I wasn't strong enough to know how to ignore it at the time. But I eventually got through it and, and lived to tell the tale. But Titanic affected my choices in, in as much as this. I knew with that huge success that whilst it was extraordinary and absolutely brought with it freedom of choice, and suddenly I went from auditioning for parts to no longer having to audition ever again. Straight offers from the age of 21, which is kind of crazy. And also slightly ashamed because auditions are kind of where you learn a huge amount. I always say to my daughter who's acting now, get in the room, just keep going, auditions, auditions. It doesn't matter if you don't get the job, just get used to that feeling of walking in the door. Get used to that feeling of being vulnerable and how to hold yourself and, you know, how to not be too nervous and, you know, how to connect. And they're quite important moments for a young actor. So that disappeared. But I wasn't, I wasn't ready to be famous. I mean, it just didn't fit. Oh, sure, you could have more time because I love listening to you talk about your career. You did get offered roles, as you say, and you picked such a terrific range of them. Do you have a favourite role? Yeah, I have a few, but I think when I look back over the years, I think a favourite for me is probably Clementine in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But you see, the period from Titanic till then, which is about six or seven years, I look back and it seems like it was longer, but it, 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 but it actually isn't. That period of time, making those choices to do smaller films and take risks and be in things that sometimes barely even saw the light of day. I think all of that sort of instinctive behaviour on my part as an actor in making those smaller choices. Things really, like quills. Yeah, I think, I think all of those yeah. things, you know, they, I think all of it paid off because... So suddenly I, I was sort of slightly carving out a place for myself that was, you know, someone who could play characters, you know, who didn't have to be, you know, the in-your-face leading lady looking immaculate all the time, you know, and that's not me really. And I, and I am more of, I think, hopefully a character actor. I feel much more comfortable when I don't have to sort of look good on screen. I always find that a huge pressure. So, but I think Clementine is probably one of my one of my favourites. Yeah, and sometimes even the, even the characters who are like you know not not very pleasant to sort of play can also leave a bit of a leave a bit of a you know a mark on me. The mayor that I just played in in Mayor of Easttown for HBO, she's definitely left us. I mean, I keep, I'm trying to sort of get rid of her because I've only just finished playing her and it's like, oh God, go, go, leave. She won't, she's still hanging they around. They kick around inside you. Mm, oh yeah, they, they kick... really do. That, that one in particular, because there's a, this backstory that's quite sad. And so I had to create so much trauma for myself to be able to play that stuff. And I just haven't figured out how to get rid of the trauma bit yet. 
And it's so silly because it's just acting. You know, it's just acting. It's all invented, you know. And there were times when, when my family, my husband and the kids would say to me, they'd see me distressed and, you know, thinking about a scene that I'd just done. And they would say, Mum, it's not real. And I'd go, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that. It is real. It has to be real. It's got to be. It's got to be real. I get quite cross with them. They always tease me. <laughs> I'm going to jump ahead a bit because you'll know everyone was watching Contagion, your 2011 film at the start of the pandemic. And the film dealt with all the issues that have really come up, like a global race for a vaccine. And Matt Hancock even cited the film as having influenced his planning. You played a virologist who who really early on works out what's coming. How has playing that role affected the way you have watched the COVID-19 pandemic unfold in real life? Well, it's interesting because I'm not a sort of a germaphobe. You know, I don't obsessively in life pre-COVID, I don't obsessively wash hands or not touch door handles or not shake hands with people. And when I was preparing for contagion, I worked with epidemiologists and experts who were already knocking elbows, you know. They'd go, I'd go to shake their hand and they'd go, they would not touch your hand, you know. Why would I shake your hand? I don't know where your hand's been. Anyway, come with me. Let me show you my sciencey thing in this lab down here. I mean, it did, I have to be honest, it did, it did prepare me really well you know I I knew what a KN95 mask was long before you know the next the next person and I was one of the first people wearing masks straight away I was wearing masks from February and walking down the street in Philadelphia where I was working you know crowded areas I would be wearing a mask and absolutely people would stare at me like I was crazy and wiping down door handles and you know we, we lived in a building in Philadelphia where the staff were so, so lovely. They had these luggage carts, a little bit like a hotel. And so if ever we'd come home with just lots of shopping, they'd insist on putting it on the luggage cart. And I would, I would, it's fine, honestly, we can carry everything up, no problem, because I just didn't want to have to touch this luggage cart that I knew they'd been, was a huge thing that would have been a little bit embarrassing to like wipe down the entire luggage cart. But that was from February. I just knew I don't, don't touch my shopping. I'll, I've got my shopping. Thank you. <laughs> you know? But yeah, it definitely, it definitely um, had an impact on me. In your latest film, Ammonite, you play the real-life paleontologist Mary Anning, who was one of the first and greatest fossil hunters. She wasn't given the recognition she deserved in this new field of science. And there's a powerful line in a letter that she wrote, which I wouldn't be surprised if you've probably read, the world has used me so unkindly, I fear it has made me suspicious of everyone. I saw that suspicion from the moment you appear on screen. What did it mean for you giving this real woman a voice? I mean, it was an enormous honour to play Mary. It really, it, it really was. And it, it, really, it really moved me to see how much it meant to people in Lyme Regis where we filmed that we were bringing her to life. And actually, they teach the story of Mary Anning in schools in Lyme Regis. And there was a wonderful moment. We were standing on the quay in Lyme and a group of four-year-old school children were just having a little outing with their teachers. There must have been about 15 of them. And there was me in my period costume with my cape and my bonnet like Mary Anning. And they literally went, (gasps) (laughs) Are you Mary Anning? (laughs) I said, yes. (gasps) And they absolutely 
absolutely. It was like Father Christmas had 100% shown up in April. They were like, <gasps> like flat against the harbour wall like this, looking at their teacher. Is it okay if they, you know, is it okay if they speak to me? Are you Mary Nannin? Oh my God, it was just amazing. That one was special. I was only 11 years old. Days it took to dig it out, clean it. I'd like to see it. It's in the British Museum, with its fancy made-up name, Ichthyosaurus. We couldn't keep it. It was years worth of food, rent and clothing. It was wonderful playing Mary. Very, very complicated playing her because there actually isn't that much written about her from a personal point of view. You're right about that line. She did keep, not diaries, but she would call them her workbooks, where she wrote a lot of prayer, a lot of poetry, lots of sketchbooks that she kept, because obviously she had, to, she had to document all of her finds, and so she drew extremely well. But, you know, she was, you know, the world had dealt her a very hard hand. She lost her father when she was young. I, I, she was very close to her father. And so for me, in, in building our version of Mary actually found myself leaning quite a lot on her childhood. And I decided that she, that she probably had a sort of little bit of abandonment issues in some way, having lost her, her dad and being raised by a mother who was just so, so riddled with grief, having lost six other children to smallpox and house fires and floods and awful, you know, poverty illnesses. And so Mary, I think... She had to learn how to survive, really, on her own emotionally from a very, very young age. And subsequently, I felt, had a lot of kind of emotional chips missing, little bits of her missing. So with the love story element of our film, you know, I had to find a place for Mary where she, she was deeply insecure, didn't know how to be loved, really, and also didn't know how to, ex how to express it just, just sort of fleeting jealousy. To her, it was a real affront, you know, a real rejection. And that had to come from quite a deep-rooted place. So, so yeah, I did, I, did, I did really quite a lot of prep for that film, just to build those emotional layers and really bolt her down. Physically, she moved very differently to me as well. And, 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 and finding that different sort of rhythm internally for her was something that was, was very important to me. I had to just, I had to remove all of my Kateness, you know, and really sort of anchor her in something that was quite uncomfortable and still. I'm not, I'm not used to that at all. Um, <laughs> but I loved her. I loved, loved playing her. Ammonite has this wonderful frankness in the sexual relationship we see on screen. And I've always felt watching your intimate scenes that they always feel honest. I never feel uncomfortable. But you'll know there's a real concern since Me Too about how we film such scenes. And nowadays there are special intimacy coordinators on set. I don't know if you've worked with them, but I wonder if you feel that they make a difference. Did you ever wish you'd had them in the past? 
I definitely wish I'd had them in the past. Yeah, I absolutely do. It's interesting, we didn't have an intimacy coordinator on Ammonite, and I think it's partly because at the time that we made the film, that was the beginning of 2019, intimacy coordinators were only sort of slightly just becoming a thing. They aren't a legal requirement yet, I don't, I don't believe, on film sets. And actually, Ammonite was truly a very low-budget film, so there simply wasn't the money. We didn't have stunt doubles, we didn't have hand doubles, we didn't, you know, we, we barely had a packed lunch, you know. So it was, um, so it was, it wasn't something that was ever offered to us. But I think Sersha and I felt we felt quite confident in what we wanted to what we wanted to do with the characters in terms of their emotional journey within those intimate scenes. And I think the two of us together sort of looking after one another made us feel a bit better. But I absolutely, I mean, not made us feel better, but made us feel, you know, made us feel bold and brave. And actually we felt, we felt good about what we'd planned. And as you say, it felt like it came from an honest place. But, but yes, for sure, I think in, in, in the past, I think I, I, I could have absolutely, you know, done with that, you know, that 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 friend really sometimes you just need you just need to have someone to say oh look you know can you ask him to not put his hand there you know just so it's not you who's having to say do you mind not putting your hand there <laughs> you know which can be which can be pretty awkward and i think it might have made it might have made a difference to me over the years you know it's inter- it's interesting you know with hindsight i look back on all these things but but i tell you one thing that it, it, that I, I feel very protective of younger actors now and on on mayor of easttown we had a situation where the young actress who plays my daughter her name is angari rice she's an australian actress and she's 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 now 20 she was 19 at the time she plays an lgbtq character and she had an intimate scene in a car and and because there are no clothes that come off in this scene no one had thought to bring in an intimacy coordinator. But but it was an LGBTQ subject at that part in that part of the story. And and I wasn't about to question her on her own sexual identity. I was it wasn't my business at all, but I just got the sense that she was nervous. And I said to her, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be around. I'm gonna stay for this. I'm not gonna leave the set. And she was like, Oh my god, Kate, thank you so much. Anyway, I actually ended up being in the car. I was in the boot of the car because I looked at this this vehicle, and it was these two young actresses together in the front seats of the car, and two absolute gentlemen, but two male camera operators in the car with them, being the only other people in their space. And that I, that that mm-mm. I was like, mm, that's not, they need to know that they can say, actually, I don't feel comfortable. Lovely, respectful men who've been in the industry for years. But I just said, to, I said to Angari, do you want me to be in the car? And she was like, do you mind? And I said, absolutely. So I'm in, I was in the boot of the car just because I just knew it, it just made them feel better to have that person who could put their hand up and say, actually, we're going to cut now. You know, uh, is everyone feeling okay? You know, sometimes directors even don't feel comfortable communicating with actors about intimate scenes, even if it's just kissing. Sometimes there are conversations that could be uncomfortable to have. You don't all know each other necessarily that well. And and so it's important, it's very, very important to always speak up, always say, actually, I don't feel, feel comfortable with, with, with that. Do you mind? And really think you know, about the moment. I would just observe before we take audience questions that it's you learning on the job because... The way that you've just spoken is the way Emma Thompson 
spoke all those years ago about being conscious of this young um, actor on her set. So uh, it's lovely to see that. We've got lovely questions. So this is from Louisa, who's 12 years old and she's in Germany. Hi, Kate. What would you recommend for me becoming an actress like you? And I'm going to stick one else in with it. So while you're thinking about that, which is a lovely one, Maggie Billings asks, if anyone asked me who my role model is, I would say, Kate, have you ever had a role model and what did they teach you? So do you want to start with the the role model or advice for a budding young 12-year-old So So Louisa, Louisa in Germany, is that her name, Louisa? Yes. So, So Louisa, the one thing that I would want to say to you more than anything else is welcome to the greatest job in the world. If you choose to do do this job for a living, it is truly fantastic. But I do need to tell you that you have to be patient and always do the work, always concentrate, always really try your best and Trust your instincts, you know, listen to that little voice inside you that will always be your friend and never give up, never, ever give up. Even if anyone says to you, oh, well, you know, you'd be more suited to this thing. Are you sure you really want to do that? You know, you you, you need to train and do this other job or, or, or what about this thing? If you truly believe that acting is your passion and it's what you want to do, then then do the work and and, and keep going for it, you know. Just keep trying and do it a lot. Do it in front of the mirror. Do it with your friends. Do it, you know, learn scenes, learn poems, have fun experimenting with different voices. And that's how you'll build up your confidence because you'll start to learn things about yourself as you go through that that really, really fun process. Acting is experimenting. There is no right or wrong way and there is no such thing as perfect in general. (laughs) Excellent. So that's, that's that your, one. That's, that's that a great answer. tutorial for Louisa. <laughs> that that is a great. Well, I've got two last questions. What moment has made you laugh most in your career? And from a Jacinta in London, is there a role that you haven't played yet but would love to? So I'll answer the second one first. I would love to play a man. I would love to play a man one day. I Do you mean like playing Hamlet? No, Ooh. I wouldn't want to play Hamlet. I think that'd be too much pre- pressure. Just a, just a man. I just would like the experience of <laughs> playing a man, see what that feels like. I don't know. Maybe that's a really controversial answer. I have no idea. But the first part of what was the funniest moment. Okay, I'm really, I really am telling a story now that <laughs> I have never publicly told. There is a film that I did with Leo called Revolutionary Road. It was directed by Sam Mendes. Sam and I were married at the time. And we were filming a scene that comes at the at the end of the story when Frank and April are having breakfast together. It's all lit very white and beautifully in this room. And April is making scrambled eggs for Frank. I played April, Leo played Frank. And they're sitting together at the table and they have a conversation. Anyway, we stop filming for a little break while they're moving the lights around. And Leo looks at me and he's like, God, I really fancy, I really want some chocolate. I said, oh, that is a, that's a good idea. What should we have? I said, should we have like a Twix or something? He said, no, no, no. I, you know, we need, like, get, we need to get like a bunch of chocolate. You know, let's, who can we ask? So I, so I said, oh, you know, I asked one of the, one of the film crew, one of the, the ADs, would you mind, could you possibly get Leo and I some chocolate? <laughs> so this lovely AD brings this little bowl of chocolate. 
and they put it on the table. And it's all bits of broken up like dairy milk and green and blacks and different flavors. And, you know, some's got nuts in, some's got fruit in, we can see. So we start eating this chocolate. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Oh, that one's got ginger. Oh, that's honeycomb, I think that one is. Leo suddenly <laughs> puts this piece of chocolate in his mouth, starts chewing and goes, mm-hmm. ah, ah, spits out. Literally like, you know, in Little Britain, David Williams plays that character that goes, bah, oh, Marjorie, why didn't you tell me? And vomit comes out. It was almost like that. Leo goes, bah, and sprays this chocolate all over the table, which had this white napkin all over the floor, which was a white carpet. And he's going, bleh, bleh, bleh. I'm cracking up laughing. I'm, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm saying to him, what the hell is the matter with you? What, what's wrong? What is it? And he just looks at me with this chocolate dripping, dripping down his face all onto his costume. He's like, that was horrific cherry. Obviously, it's not that funny. It's not that funny at all. It was hilarious. We were in absolute hysterics. We were in our own little Kate Leo mad little thing. We are absolutely cracking up laughing to the point that we can no longer look each other in the eye. But we haven't finished filming the scene. So it was one of those moments where someone would say, action and Leo and I would go (laughs) no okay okay it's not funny okay yeah let's go action (laughs) this went on this went on for well over an hour every time they would say and finally Sam got so he was like oh for god's sake went outside he was like sort yourselves out and we were like oh my god we're never gonna do it oh my god what we're gonna do what are we gonna do we're laughing we're never gonna do this in the end we had to Leo had to sit eight inches to the right so that I could stare at a piece of tape that they put just below the camera so that was his face but he was there because I and he stared at my earlobe we could not look each other in the eye and even now I will sometimes say to him oh my god do you remember that moment with the chocolate he's like oh please don't even remind me he's like I get literally it gives me anxiety just to remember it because it's terrible as an actor and it never happens to me but if you crack up laughing and you cannot control yourself it's you really get you're like oh my god what am I going to do what now what am I going to do I mean it's that's it's gone I can't I can't do it. You can't look at that person. It's absolutely awful. Anyway, that, even though I know it doesn't sound that funny, it was so funny. And that is the funniest moment of my career. There you go. I don't know whether that makes me really sad or just (laughs) really amused by Leo DiCaprio eating chocolate. Kate Winslet, it's been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on How I Found My Voice. Thank you so much. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligent Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligentsquared.com.
And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.